This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, book lover. I am so glad you are here listening to my award-winning podcast, Thoughts from a Page, which is a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. This show is a passion project for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoy making it. I only interview authors whose books I have read and enjoyed, so if I am chatting with an author on the main show, it means that I really liked their book and feel comfortable recommending it to you. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I work hard to find the best ones and share them with you. For more book recommendations and to find my backlist of interviews, visit my website at thoughtsfromapage.com. Are you looking for an engaging book community with unique bonus content? If so, I hope you will consider joining my Patreon community, which is filled with a wonderful group of readers. I offer three levels, page turners, lit lovers, and royal readers, and each level provides all sorts of cool bonus book content that you will not find elsewhere. If you're interested or want more information, the link to join is in my show notes. Today, I am chatting with Kara Hunter about murder in the family. Kara is the author of the Sunday Times bestselling crime novels, Close to Home, In the Dark, No Way Out, All the Rage, and The Whole Truth, all featuring D.I. Adam Foley and his Oxford-based police team. Kara's novels have sold more than a million copies worldwide. She lives in Oxford on a street not unlike those featured in her books. I hope you enjoy our conversation. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome, Cara. How are you today? I'm doing really well, thank you. We've actually got some nice weather in the UK today, which we haven't had most of the summer. I am so jealous. I'm in Houston and it has just been brutally hot here for the last, I don't even know how long. So I'm jealous that your weather is nice. Yeah, well, we had some nice sunshine and it's breezy. So yeah, it's a proper summer day. Good. Well, you enjoy that. I'm hoping that we're going to get to that someday soon. Well, I absolutely loved Murder in the Family, and I cannot wait to chat about it. But before we do that, would you give me a quick synopsis for those that haven't read it yet? Sure. Now, my elevator pitch for this usually is it's true crime reality TV meets Agatha Christie. So if you like a really traditional way of telling a crime story meets a really bang up to date one. So basically, the setup is it's the uh, format is written as a screenplay for a series of episodes in a true crime TV show. And a group of experts are brought together to reinvestigate an old unsolved murder case. But the Agatha Christie twist is that right from the start, so this is not a spoiler, right from the start, we know as readers that one of the people involved in making the program is the original killer. It was such a fun read. And I just had 
a blast making my way through all of the different multimedia formats that you used. Was that something that you knew you wanted to do from the very beginning? I mean, I would assume the answer is yes, because it's such a different format than you normally see. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've used quite a bit of mixed media in my previous books. I've, I've written a series of, of these procedurals set in Oxford, which is where I live. And right from the start, I've used mixed media in those. But as time's gone on, people have always said to me how much they love that part of it. So the more I've put in each of those books successively, the more people have loved it. And the thing they always say to me is that it means that they feel like they're, they're the detectives themselves. It's like getting the raw material of the case. So I've ended up with those books with uh, maps, with body maps, with a podcast, with you name it. I've, I've put it in. I have a lot of fun doing that aspect of the book. So when I got the, the idea for Murder in the Family, I thought, okay, I can do the whole thing that way. I can actually push this idea of mixed media to its logical extreme and take the presence of the author out altogether. So there's no me in this book at all. There's just my material and my readers, and they get just as much chance to, to work it out as the people involved in making the TV show. So what was it like writing in that way? I mean, I loved it. I, I have never had so, mu so much <laughs> uh, writing a book as I had writing this one. Uh, it was just a real blast to write it, but it's quite complicated. Um, and also it has the same challenge, I suppose, as writing a screenplay. I have never written a screenplay, but the idea that you have only the character's words uh, to get across their personalities and, and to tell the story. You don't have the ability as the writer to step in and you know, give the reader some information or go inside one of your character's heads and let them, the reader know what's going on. You only do it through what they say. So that's quite a challenge, as well as all of the, the little red herrings and the cliffhangers and needing bits of the plot out, uh, you know, gradually to, to give people plenty to chew on as we go through. So it was, it was a bit like three-dimensional chess in some ways, but like I say, it was so much fun. Did it take a lot more passes? Did you have to do the round one and then go back and be like, okay, wait a minute, I didn't put enough information in here, or maybe I should have put this in a different format? I mean, what did that process look like? I mean, I did do that, obviously, because, because I always have to. I mean, every writer, especially of crime, I think, has to do that. You have to work out the pacing of your story and make sure that you've got that sense of new revelations coming. But it, it wasn't any more challenging in that respect, I think, than the other books I've written. Uh, so in, in some ways, it was, it was actually easier because the the format of the episodes uh, actually gave a really strong structure. And then at the end of each episode, we have uh, a moment where as readers, we see the reaction of people who are watching the show. So there's a, a true crime chat board where they're all getting together after watching each episode and sharing their thoughts. So, so that was fun to do. That gives a, a different perspective. And also we get a TV review from a critic uh, looking at the show and, and you know, talking about it as the, the different episodes are screened. And that gave me the chance to talk about some of the wider issues involved, and which is very interesting, I think quite important to do, because there are some moral and ethical issues raised by our new fascination with, with true crime. And having that uh, TV critic, uh, we were able to actually think about those issues as well. I mean, how intrusive is this? Is this the right thing to be doing for entertainment? So it was a good way of getting lots of different perspectives on, on what's still basically you know, an exciting thing to try and solve if you're a reader. 
That's so interesting that you brought up that aspect of true crime, because that's one of my questions. I think that is starting to be explored more and more by writers. The fact that readers and watchers and others are absorbing true crime and trying to solve these mysteries, but they're people's actual lives. I mean, these are things that have happened to actual individuals versus fiction, and that it can be very intrusive. And where is the line drawn and, and where is it acceptable and where is it not? It's really interesting. It's a real challenge. And, and you're right. You're absolutely right. And, and when it's a, a very cold case, as this, obviously it's fictional, this one, but when you've got a very cold case, then clearly it's less intrusive, but there will still be people around alive who are related to the victim, related to a perpetrator or an alleged perpetrator. And then they didn't ask to be dragged into this and they can find that their, their past, their history, their, their relatives are being drawn into a debate like that and, and may not welcome it at all. It's even worse, I think, with what you might call live cases. There was an example in the UK, a woman who went missing last year. And uh, because it was covered so uh, exhaustively on, on the media, a lot of amateur detectives turned up at, at the crime scene or what they was thought to be a crime scene actually turned out it was just an accident. But you know, obviously, an accident isn't as exciting as a potential murder. So there were a lot of people who turned up and started having their theories and they were starting to get in the way of law enforcement. And they were asking people, please don't come. You know, you're not being helpful. And so you can see how you know, the line there is getting very blurred indeed. They're actually getting in the way of, of solving the, this, what turned out to be a very sad accident. Absolutely. And not only that, but as you said, relatives getting drawn in, people showing up on people's doorsteps, names getting drawn through the mud online. I mean, I think there are a lot of side effects or things that happen that aren't at all helpful and useful. So it's just kind of interesting to see how it all plays out. Now, of course, yours is fictional. But it's just interesting to see how much is happening with respect to when these individuals are getting involved in these true crime cases. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It, it, it is interesting. And obviously, sometimes uh, going back and looking at these old cases can help solve them and, and actually uh, you know, vindicate people who've always uh, claimed that they were wrongly convicted. So there's that side of this as well, where you could say that the public attention that's brought to bear is is helpful. I mean, look at Serial, which started the whole true crime uh, podcast ad that we've all seen. It can actually be really helpful to cast a new light on an old case. Not always. And, and of course, you don't always know when you start whether it's going to turn out that way, whether it's going to turn out to be helpful or not to, to revisit a real case. Absolutely. And it's just fascinating to me that true crime has taken such a turn and that it is something that people are so obsessed with. And I'm always curious as to why. That's a really good question. In fact, I had a conversation with a criminologist about it exactly this a while back. And, and I was saying to her, well, how do you uh, explain this fascination with, with true crime? And, and one of the things that she said was that uh, if you look at the, the demographics of people who read crime fiction or watch true crime on TV or, or listen to podcasts tends to be a sort of a middle-aged woman um, demographic, as we all know, that's the big market for buying crime fiction particularly. And if you look at the way that um, crime plays out in people's minds in their fears, 
the group of people who are least likely to be affected by crime in their in their own lives and are most afraid of it is exactly that same demographic of middle-aged women. So it's almost as if they're listening to true crime in a way to either get so I suppose and even what would I do if I was in this situation, you know, to to arm themselves uh, in case they found themselves in that situation, or even to, I suppose, like, you know, jinx it or ward it off. You know, the more you you read it and listen to it, the less likely you think you'll ever be in that state. So it's, it's very unusual that it plays into a very, very deep fears, I think. I think so, too. I love crime fiction, always have, like since I was young, but I'm not really that interested in true crime. But I love stories like yours. And I think it's really interesting to think about the morality aspects of it and where we're going with it and what's happening to people and all of that. Yeah, I'm, for me, uh, I suppose the thing that I'm interested in the most is the why. It's the motivation. So I'm not so much interested when I'm re- reading or listening to true crime. I'm not so much interested in what happened or how the murder, say, was committed. Those types of details I'm not especially bothered about. but. Why? Yes, always. Because, you know, it's obvious, you don't really need to say it, but the difference between crime fiction and true crime, of course, is that true crime did actually happen. So it's not something that's been made up in the mind of somebody like me. Uh, real people made these real decisions. And, and that's what I'm fascinated about, that, that people could make the decisions they make and end up in such bad places because of those decisions. And that's, that's why I, I find it compelling. Makes perfect sense. One of the things I'm always interested in, and I have a special behind the scenes series that addresses this, is kind of different things that happen in the publishing industry. And one of them was how a book actually gets made. So, with respect to your book, I was so curious because you create all of these different formats. Did you actually have a say in how your stuff translated to the page? I know there are people whose job it is to design the interior part of a book. As I said, I interviewed somebody for my behind the scenes series. But did you work with that person to see what it would look like in your book? Or did you let them design it? And then you had to say, like, what did that look like? Since your book is completely in a multimedia format, I was really curious as I was reading. Every single piece of artwork in my book was made by me. I don't have a designer. I do everything myself. Um, so I'm, I'm a bit of a geek, I have to say. I mean, obviously, I, I, I told the typesetters what I wanted the, the layout of the screenplay to look like, and I wanted it to mimic a real screenplay as closely as possible. Everything else, the, the artwork, the um, CVs, the resumes at the beginning of the, of the experts who form part of the show, uh, there's, there's a map, I think, which I found of a, a, an old map of London, which obviously I didn't make. Pretty much every single other thing I made myself because it matters to me how it looks. So I did work with my production team at HarperCollins to to translate what I had made onto uh, the files they needed in purely publishing terms. But I, I did it all myself and I had a ball. I love that bit of it. I'm a real geek. <laughs> I figured you had to because it's a little different than somebody who includes a text string or an email string or something like that where it's really written in a traditional format with a little bit of something else thrown in. Your entire book is written in a unique format. So I'm assuming as you're doing it, you have a way you want it to look. But I was curious just because I know a lot goes into an interior design of a book. 
And so I was curious what that looked like for your book. So that's amazing that you did all of that. Well, thank you. Yes. I mean, I did. I think I gave my poor production team a bit of a headache, but uh, I think in the end, they ended up in, enjoying it and it was a bit different and a new challenge for them. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I spend so much time making it look the way I want um, that I've become a, a little bit of a perfectionist, I think, by the end. But it does look beautiful. You're right. They've done such a lovely job in translating what I did for them into how it looks on the page. So yeah, it's, it's, I think, a bit of a different experience for, for readers, and I hope they'll like it. Oh, it really is. I just poured over it. And I was telling you before we recorded that I have a Patreon group for the podcast. And one of the benefits for one of my levels is called a Traveling Galley Program. And we get five copies, print galleys, and your book is one of them. And the readers have been passing it around and absolutely loving it. And the thing everybody's commenting on is one, the story, how much fun it is, but also the format and how clever it is. And pouring over the different elements and trying to piece it all together. And it's just really so much fun because it's almost a puzzle in addition to a story. Yes, it is. You're, you're right. And, and I think because it looks different, it has sort of attracted some attention. In fact, uh, I don't know, you may have picked up, but about two weeks ago, it was picked up by a book talker. And, and she did a little video of opening her book mail, which obviously is quite a common thing for people to do on, on TikTok. And she took the book out and she just flicked through it. You could, because she was flicking through it, you could actually see that it was laid out in a very different way and that there were images and all sorts of other things. And by the time I was, I was told about this, which was, I think, only about a few hours after she put it up, it had already had 1.6 million views and it's now had over 4 million views. And it's just incredible. It just went viral. And it's been absolutely amazing experience, a real roller coaster. And it's, you know, it's done really well in the UK since that came. Well, it was doing all right anyway, but it's done so much better since that happened. It just shows you the power of, of book talk. It really does. And I know there are so many other authors who've, whose careers have really taken off as a result of that. And I've seen this book really starting to fly uh, simply because of quite a short little video about it. I'm not on book talk, so I didn't see that. But I did see that your book was already out in the UK and how well it was doing there. And, you know, I think it's so interesting. You go to these bookstores and they have whole book talk sections. So, yes, book talk does make a very big difference. That's wonderful that her video went viral about your book. Yeah, it was, it's, it's lovely. I, I dropped her a little line about three days later saying thank you. Obviously, I didn't know her at all and I didn't know she was going to do it. Uh, it was really sweet because she, she came back and said, oh, thank you for you know, taking, taking the time to, to get in touch. And, yeah, as I say, it's it's been so, so important in terms of, of uh, raising the visibility of the book, because as you know, with, you know, the whole publishing industry, it's, there's a lot of really good fiction out there now. So getting noticed is, is a challenge for, for all writers, I think. I think that's exactly right. There are so many books coming out that it is really hard to try to rise above it. So anything like that is very useful. One of my favorite questions to ask is who is the hardest to write and who is the easiest to write? And I'm particularly curious about that with respect to your book, because the format is so different. So was there a character that was really harder to get their motives? And I don't want to have any kind of spoilers, but their motives or their particularly way of doing things down in this type of format? That's a really good question, actually. Not so much. I think it was more that because they all had this about basically the same airtime. So it wasn't like there was one character that I had to sort of spend more time on in order to bring them through. But 
I think the, the real challenge, one of the challenges anyway for me, was I have an American detective, an ex-NYPD detective as one of my cast. So I had to do a lot to make sure that he sounded authentic. Uh, so my my American editor was sort of helping me out on some of that. But I was, I'm, I was obviously being a bit of a geek and making sure that I got some of the terminology right. And there are a couple of jokes, uh, you know, in in the course of the book where the American uh, cop and the British cop are sparring, and and the American cop is saying things that you wouldn't say in the UK because it's a different way of pronouncing a word or something like that. So there's there's some comedy to be had in there, and sort of the differences that that divide the two the two nations who speak the same language. I always think that's so interesting. My parents lived in Australia for four years. And when I would visit and use very basic American expressions, and I would get these completely blank looks from Australians, it's just funny. We do all speak English, but some of the colloquialisms are so different. Oh, they certainly are. Yes, it's it's, it's always wildly entertaining <laughs> if you go in a different country that speaks English, and then you then they look at you oddly when you just say something you think is normal. Exactly. You're like, okay, we use this all the time, but they have no idea what I mean. The one I always find amusing between. American English and English English is the use of the word quite. So if um, American says something's quite good, um, I think you mean it's really good. Whereas in, in the UK, if you say something's quite good, you only mean it's so-so, it's all right. So you can really, really uh, mistake what people mean or get offended if someone says your book's quite good. You think, oh, really? I thought you'd like it. <laughs> You're like, but I do like it. It's quite good. <laughs> That's funny. I'm not even sure I realized that. I mean, I know the quite in America, but I'm not sure I knew that quite was not very good in the UK. No, no, no. I mean, you can tell a bit from someone's tone. So if I were to say it's quite good, you could see, yeah, I mean it positively. But if they said it neutrally, like it's quite good. That's, yeah, that, that's mean it's all right, but not much. That's funny. I always think about things like trunk and boot. And some of yeah. those kind of things, you know, yeah, that yeah. I, I have to be like boot, like because I think about boots, you know. So it's just funny the different words that are used. Yeah, and purse and wallet. I mean, a purse in the UK is, uh, you know, a little brown le leather thing you put coins in, and women have them. And wallets are fold up pieces of, you know, leather pouches that men have. So it's it's quite different. And whereas a purse in America is like a handbag, isn't it? A shoulder bag or something like that. So it's very different. And I'm blanking right now, but what you all call sweaters. Jumpers. Jumper. Yes, because for us, a jumper is like a dress. And so then for the longest time, I was like, jumper? And so it was so confusing to me. And then I'm like, oh, what we call sweater is what you call jumper. So in a state, like there's just a, like a state here is a really nice house. And I know an estate there, I think, is like maybe a housing complex. Yeah, though you can, it's it's got a, lots of double meanings. So if you own an estate, then you're like a, a duke or a duchess and you have a massive amount of ground. So owning an estate, whereas if living on an estate, um, those tend to be uh, like um, uh, council housing or, you know, housing for people with, with lower incomes. So yeah, it's, it's it's got lots of different meanings. It took me a long time to equate that type of estate with like a housing complex or a housing project. I didn't understand that for a while. So yeah, it's just interesting trying to navigate some of those things. Yeah, yeah definitely. And especially when you, you want your character, in, in my case, the character of Bill Serafini, the American detective, you want him to sound genuine. You certainly don't want your American readers to read it and think, well, this guy is just a cliche. You know, he's got to sound like a real person. Absolutely. 
Well, on that note, what surprised you the most when writing this one? Uh-huh, good question. I suppose and I can't say how much fun it was uh, because I mean I, I I had so much enthusiasm about the concept, but I didn't know what it's going to be like to actually bring it off, and, and I didn't expect it to be quite as much fun as it was. But also, I think what I was saying earlier that um, I was lucky. Some of the decisions I made about the structure, like having the the TV critic, it did allow me to go much deeper into some of the issues raised by the whole phenomenon of true crime. And I, I hadn't realized that that would be a way to do it. So that was surprising, but a really nice surprise that suddenly I got this whole new extra dimension from something that started out as just being fun, the idea of having a TV critic reviewing the previous episode. It turned out to be something that actually gave me an extra dimension. A variety of different layers. Absolutely. And that's that's always the fun part. I like to think that with it, with any good crime book, uh, that that the reader gets what's there. They the more they bring, the more they find. So you want to create something that's got lots of layers. So if someone just wants to come and read it for the story and that's it, then that's absolutely fine, and that that's that's a great outcome for me as a writer. But if someone wants to come and engage with the issues much more and go a bit deeper, then you want to be able to give them a story that can do that. That's what I really liked about it was that I felt there were several different layers. I was enjoying the story itself, but then there were some thought-provoking things to really ponder. Yeah, yeah. And I think crime can do that. And that's why I always say that crime is uh, actually, it's seen sometimes as a bit of a correlation type of genre, not as serious as literary fiction or some of the other things. But I think it can be a very good place to explore social issues because partly because it has a big readership as a genre, and also because um, people who are in crime novels, the characters in crime novels, are facing extreme situations. And I think that can be quite a, a powerful way to explore social issues. I agree with that completely. One thing I always love to talk about is titles and covers. So I love your American cover. And then I was seeing today that you have a very different UK cover as well. So can you tell me a little bit about your cover process? Well, as with most writers, it, it's really down to the publisher, the whole cover design. I mean, you, you get uh, your contract, which will allow you to at least comment on your cover design from your publisher, but you don't have a great deal of say about what it looks like. And in, in a way, that's really good because each publisher in each different market will know what works in their country. So my overseas Covers always look, well, most of them always look completely different from what I was expecting. But that's that's a good thing because uh, I don't know those markets, so I don't know what will appeal to readers. But you're right about the American one. I think that's absolutely gorgeous. I mean, they've they've captured the sort of upscale uh, nature of the house where this original murder took place really beautifully. But the colours are just stand out. I totally love the colour scheme. So. Yeah, I think they've done a brilliant, brilliant job. Um, whereas the the UK one is really going for the whole true crime angle. There's like a like a fingerprint on the cover, and then strings attached to pins. You know, like we used to see on on boards in in crime TV, where they're trying to link different aspects of the case with bits of string. So it's got that very real true crime feel to it. Quite quite different, but I think both in their way are, are really eye catching, and the colours work really well in both cases. It has to be fun to see your covers in different markets and how they've been interpreted. 
It certainly is. I always I thought it's like a little present, like a Christmas present turning up when you have the the email with, you know, cover designs attached. And, and yes, they can they can really vary. The the covers across the world for the the earlier books, my my Forley series, which is coming out in America now, um, they all vary extraordinarily between markets. I think it's 29 different countries we're in now. And some of them are really standout. It's the Brazilian ones I'm always impressed by. They have so much energy and they're really bright and, and eye-catching, whereas you tend to find the European ones are a little bit more sort of neutral in the color scheme. So it, it can tell you a lot, actually, about a publishing culture just by looking at the different, the different uh, cover designs for, for the same author. It definitely can. I lived in Rio when I was young, so that's interesting that you called out Brazil. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. Lucky you. <laughs> yeah, it was a lot of fun. So I was going to mention that, that this is your American debut. So your other books are going to be coming out here as well. They are. Yes, the, the 40 series is, uh, is coming out. Two of them were published a while back, but they're now the, the rest of the series is now coming out. And I, I'm really excited about that because I hope that uh, people who like the multimedia aspects of Murder in the Family will find that there's actually a lot of that same stuff in there and, and certainly the ability to, to be a detective and, and work it out for yourself. That's, that's feedback I've been having for a long time, long before Murder in the Family. So I, I'm hoping that people might find the same sort of fun in those, even though they haven't gone quite as far as Murder in the Family has. Okay, great. When will that be? They're starting to come out later this year. I don't have an exact uh, date, but we've got quite a few of them to come because it's the back catalogue from the UK. So there's going to be a, a nice spreading out as they as they hit the shelves. Okay, good. I'll keep an eye out because I was hoping to be able to track them down. So that's good to know. Yeah, yeah. Well, Cara, before we wrap up, what have you read recently that you really liked? So I'm in the middle at the moment of a true crime book written by someone called Mark O'Connell. And he's looking back at a, a very notorious case in, in Ireland, a murderer called Malcolm MacArthur. And he's written this extraordinary book. I mean, I've been, I'm only part of the way through it, but it's beautifully written. It's one of those ones where you get writer envy. It's so beautifully written. And it's called A Thread of Violence. And he's basically talking about how he engaged with this man who has served his time 30 years, I think, and now been released. So he tracks him down to talk to him and trying to get him to explain the motives behind the two brutal murders for which he was imprisoned. So it, it's a, an unusual take on it, actually, because it, it makes the, the writer, Mark O'Connell, think about his own motivations in wanting to write this story at all and whether he can believe what he's being told, uh, where does the truth really lie? So I think anyone who's interested in in true crime, this is it's only recently out in the UK. I'm not sure if it's out in the States yet, but I'm sure it will be. And it's certainly a really interesting and very well-written read. I have it on NetGalley. I'm not sure whether it is out yet or not, but I know that it at least is upcoming. Yeah, well, I definitely recommend it. And the one I'm, I'm saving up for my summer holiday is Shari Lapina's new one. Everyone here is lying because she's she's a friend as well as a, a wonderful writer. So I'm really looking forward to that. That's a perfect beach read. And that just came out recently here and I've been seeing it all over Instagram. Yeah. And I think it's got really good reviews. So I think it's going to be one of her best, uh, which is saying something. So I'm looking forward to that. Oh, good. Well, Cara, thank you so much for joining me on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. And I can't wait for everybody to get to read Murder in the Family. You're so kind. Thank you so much for inviting me. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, 
messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. I would love to connect with you on Instagram or Facebook, where you can find me at Thoughts From a Page. If you enjoy the show, please consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. If you have a moment to rate the show or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts, I would really appreciate it. It makes a big difference. And please tell all of your friends about Thoughts From a Page. Word of mouth does wonders to help the show grow. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Calafato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style. And together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling and all in approximately seven minutes.